0: Good morning, you guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Uh, Thrive is our current teaching series, Habits of Grace. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Psalm 1. Psalm chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6, that whole psalm. Also grab your sermon notes out and uh, take a look at that intro. This is really an important truth here. Beliefs do not automatically produce changed character. Beliefs do not automatically change produce changed character. Beliefs must be turned into changed character through spiritual disciplines. See, you may believe that God loves you, but you are just as stressed out and anxious as someone who doesn't believe. How many know that that's possible? Yes. Many times we are. And uh, I mean, let's, let's think about this just for a minute. If you believe that the God of the galaxies loves you, adores you, gave his life for you, it, it should make a difference in your life. Would you agree with that? Yeah, there's no doubt about it. It should change our lives. If we live in the reality of that, if that truth is not just a concept but a reality, that we live in. And so therefore, spiritual disciplines help us to make it a reality. The spiritual discipline we're talking about this weekend is meditation. You can also see this on your notes. Meditation is the key to making a biblical truth real to our heart and the doorway into a deeper, more satisfying prayer life. How many would like to have a deeper, more satisfying prayer life? Show of hands? Yeah, I think we all would. So here's the key. This is the key to a deeper, more satisfying prayer life, but also how you take the truths, the truths of God, and make them real to your heart. It is through meditation. So you'll notice we kicked off this uh, series talking about uh, community, and we did that purposely because we did the connection party. We want you to get plugged into a small group. And then we... Last weekend, we talked about the Bible, and so you go from the Bible to meditation? Yo, absolutely. Oftentimes, we go from the Bible right into prayer, but you need to precede your prayer with meditation. Uh, Psalm 1 is the doorway into Psalms, the Psalms... Are the are the prayer book of the Bible? So how do you learn to pray? Well, go to the Book of Psalms. It's the prayer book of the Bible. It's the longest book in the Bible, the biggest book in the Bible. And uh, Psalm one is not a prayer. That's crazy. Well, it's in a prayer book. Yep, yeah, but it's not a prayer. It's a meditation about meditation. And so it's the doorway into the book of of Psalms and the book of prayers because it's teaching us something quite significant about what we need to do with our our Bible study. Uh, See, most of us have a devotional life in which we jump from a fairly academic study of the Bible right into prayer. But after studying a passage, we need to learn to meditate our hearts hot for God and restful in His love and truth and then respond in prayer oftentimes we we read our Bible, we go right into prayer, we kind of set the agenda for our prayer rather than meditating on his scripture and then then he begins to speak to us and then our prayer life is a response to what he's speaking to us. He sets the agenda rather than us setting the agenda. That's what meditation... Is all about. We'll talk about that. And so, meditation is the key to making a biblical truth real to our heart and the doorway into a deeper, more satisfying prayer life. So, here's what we're looking at here today. You can see the outline what it is, what it does, how to do it. Meditation. So, let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me? We're going to pray and we'll dive into this. this text and unpack these notes. God, we love you, we love your presence, we love spending time with you. We cannot live on bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. We are desperate to see your face, hear your voice, feel your touch, know your power, and experience your love. Our hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder culture hinders us from true intimate conversation with you preceded by listening to your voice through slow reflection and meditation on the scripture. Help us to fight against our busy schedules, our distracted minds, and our stubborn hearts. Teach us how to go into the inner rooms of our hearts and see clearly what is there and deal with it by applying the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us specific to where our hearts are most restless. Teach us how meditation on your word can make your unimaginable goodness and unsearchable greatness more real to our hearts, transforming every area of our lives for your glory and our joy in Jesus' beautiful name. And everyone said, amen. Take a look at this text. I memorized this text a number of years ago. This is a rich text. Really a great text to memorize, the whole chapter. It's just six verses. I memorized it, and so from time to time, as we kind of work through this, I'm reading it from the ESV, but I'll kind of flash into the NIV from time to time, because that's how I memorized it and meditated on it years ago, but beginning verse 1, chapter 1, blessed Or blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. What will happen as a result of that? Well, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit In its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. I love the way the NIV puts it. The Lord watches over the ways of the righteous. That's rich but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So so first of all, what is meditation? Here's your first two, fill in the blanks. What is meditation? It is a relishing and cherishing. That's what it is. It's a relishing and cherishing, verse 2a, but his delight. And what that tells us is that meditation involves not just the intellect, the head, but also the heart. So yeah, you're... you're You're going over things in your mind and in your head, intellectually, but it should also involve the heart. It should stir you, move you. There should be some emotion involved, delight. Meditation involves not just the head, but the heart. So what are we relishing and cherishing? That's what that word delight means, relishing and cherishing. What are we relishing and cherishing? Here's the next point on your notes. The focal point is God's word. So we're just kind of walking through verse 2 here to try to understand what is meditation as we break it down. In essence, we're kind of, I'm teaching it, but we're med- meditating on it, kind of reflecting on it here. Verse 2, it says, so that, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law, and on his law. So that's the focal point. Unlike the false belief systems, the false religious systems that say and teach meditation, and they say in meditation you are to empty your mind... No, actually the biblical meditation is that you are to fill your mind with God's word. If you empty your mind, you open yourself up to a lot of false beliefs and belief systems. That's unhealthy, that's wrong. And so the Bible says, no, he meditates on the law of the Lord. As we said last week, God's word is his personal act of presence. We know that based on Hebrews 4.12, God's word is alive and powerful And so as we study God's word, communication from God is communion with God when met with a response of trust. So in essence, what we have here in this first part of verse two in trying to understand meditation, so it is a relishing and cherishing, the focal point is God's word, so the writer here is saying that he finds great pleasure in communion, conversation, communication with God, but even beyond that, he's saying, I find great pleasure in having God tell me how to live my life. That's what he's saying here. Now, why, where would you get that, Pastor? Well, I get it from the fact that he uses, he refers to the law of the Lord. Now, the law of the Lord does not mean just the law. He's actually speaking of all of God's word. And he's, so he's saying it, it all. And, but he's using the word law of the Lord is because it is, it is his ultimate authority in his life. And so in essence, he's saying, man, I just love having God tell me how to live my life. Why would he want that? Why would he desire that? Why would he delight in that? Why would any of us want that? It's because we understand that God's word has been given to us out of his perfect love and infinite wisdom. And for us to do anything that would be contrary to his word would be to trample on his perfect love and infinite wisdom. Because as our creator, knowing our weaknesses and strengths, knowing how he created us, he knows what's best for us. He's smarter than us. And so that's why the writer's saying, I delight. In the law of the Lord, I delight in having God tell me how to live my life. I delight in his word. And so, it is a relishing and cherishing. The focal point is God's word. So how often are we to do this? You're to do it regularly and relentlessly. That's the verse 2c. He meditates day and night. So you're to do it regularly and relentlessly, day and night. He meditates day and night. So everyone meditates. Did you know that you're meditating? You're meditating right now. Right now you're meditating. Don't think about it, though. Don't think about your, the fact that you're meditating. Well, you can't. You can't help but meditate. You're meditating. Everybody meditates. It's, the only choice you get is what, what will you meditate on. And the word meditate literally means to murmur, mutter, to talk to oneself. Now, let me ask you this question. How many words do we uh, speak a minute, typically? How many words do we speak a minute, generally speaking? Speak how many? About 150 to 200 words a minute. Unless you just drank a Red Bull, it's about 500 words a minute, okay? How many would say that I typically speak on Sunday mornings probably about 500 words a minute? Way too fast. Okay. Yeah, so praise God, praise God. So there's this one person that enjoys it, the rest of you don't. And so, so when people do that, I've had a few people come up to me and say, man, dude, slow down. I could not track with you. I said, uh, you can always get the DB app and re-listen to it, okay? So get off my back. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be so snarky. Oh, yes, he did. Yes, I did. I just said that to myself down deep in my heart. And uh, so we speak about 150 to 200 words a minute unless you're from the south. (laughs) Hey, everybody. It's like, come on, dude. I got places to go people to see things. You know, come on. Hey, things to do, places to go people to see. Come on, speed it up a little bit. So I just figure, you know, because I speak so many words a minute that you probably get like a two-hour message in one hour, okay? Oh, wait, is that right? Yeah, you do, that's right, because I speak, speak so quickly. So what about, what's our internal dialogue? What's the speed of our internal dialogue? How many words a minute do you think that goes on? So if we speak 150 to 200 words a minute, what's going on internally inside of you? More words than I can keep up with, okay? Right now, you're speaking to yourself faster than I'm speaking to you. Okay, you're speaking about 1,300 words a minute to yourself—that internal dialogue. And of course, unless you woke up this morning and you didn't get a very good night of sleep, and you haven't had your coffee yet, and then that internal dialogue is probably about five words a minute. Okay, <laughs> it's like uh, just sighs. Uh. And so, but that's—it's quite fascinating when you begin to think about this internal dialogue that's going on—1,300 words a minute. Now, this psalm is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. I love the Bible and how it cuts to the chase. When you read through this, I don't know if this stood out to you, but it's basically putting everybody in one of two categories. You're either wicked or you're righteous. So immediately as you walk through a text like this, you've got to say, you know, okay, which which one, which team am I on? I want to make sure I'm on the right team. And so... So that's, that's a good question. The psalm is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous and even uh, when you begin to dive into it, you begin to see he's talking about this internal dialogue between the wicked and the righteous. And so the psalm is a contrast between the wicked, verse one, f- four, and six, and then the righteous, verses five and six. And the internal dialogue of the righteous will be different from the wicked. Would you agree with that? Don't you think that there would be maybe a difference between if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the internal dialogue that's going on within you would be different from someone who doesn't know God. Someone would be classified in that, uh, on that team as being wicked. That's why one of the verses we had up on our screen here earlier during our worship time was Psalm uh, 420, or I'm sorry, Proverbs 423. It says, now listen to what he says. He says, above all else, guard your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Above all else? Yeah, 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 listen. Why? Why above all else guard your heart? Above all else guard your internal dialogue. What you're saying to yourself because it determines the course in which you go in life. So it's, it's saying, hey, that's your internal dialogue, what's going on, what you're saying to yourself, even that you're speaking those words faster than what I can speak to them. He says, guard that, guard that above all else because it determines the course in which you will Go in life. So as I begin to think about this whole idea, okay, so if the internal dialogue of a righteous person is different from a wicked person, so what would that look like for a wicked person? And you guys know this, that the best commentary for scripture is always scripture. And so as I begin to look in scripture elsewhere where it talks about wicked, it says here in Psalm 10 4. And now listen to what it says about the wicked. It says, in his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all his thoughts, there is no room for God. It's pretty interesting, isn't it? So the wicked man does not seek God. In all of his thoughts, there is no room. There's no room for God. We finished up a teaching series this summer in Romans 8. More than conquerors. And I'm still living on a high from that. I mean, that's just, that was a phenomenal series. You can go online and listen to it, and I would encourage you to do that or get our DB app and listen to it. But, but in there, Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 6, it said this, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So it's making a distinction as it is in this psalm. Between the flesh, so we could probably maybe put that in the category of the wicked, or the spirit, which would be in the category of the righteous. So it's making a, di- a distinction here. And so you're going to have a mindset. Your mindset is either going to be of the flesh, or it's either going to be of the spirit. And then it goes on, and it says, for the mind of the flesh is death, but the mind of the spirit is, you guys know what it says, life and peace. Sign me up. That's what I want. I want to try to understand what that means and, uh, and so I've taught you this uh, for years now, so let me continue to teach this because this is what was most beneficial for me as it relates to really understanding the internal dialogue that's going on within my own mind, my heart. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. So when you're laying in bed at night and you can't sleep because you had maybe too much caffeine in the evening, where does your mind go? It will tell you a lot about what's most important to you. And, and, and when I initially began to look at that, that was terribly troubling for me. Because I realized that it was actually betraying me in so many ways. I thought that that I loved God and God really truly loved me. But I wasn't living in the reality of that because that's not where my thoughts went. My thoughts went to work and and... People pleasing and to all these things, you know, these brain debates of of dialogues and interaction I had with people earlier that day, and and this whole list of to do lists and all these things, it was really, really troubling for me. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when nothing else is demanding your attention. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God is an idol. It's idolatry. And I began to go, why? My heart is an idol factory. I got just tons of things that I cling to, that I, that I put my hope in, that I trust in, that I love actually, actually more than God. And it was very troubling, but it was very good because that's where God ultimately wanted to transform my life. Jeremiah 29, 13, Hebrews eleven six. 6. You can write those on, on your notes. I don't think they're cross-references on your notes, but write those down. But Jeremiah 29, 13, maybe you're familiar with it. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your what? With all your heart, deepest loyalties and affections. Hebrews 11.6 talks about faith. That's the faith chapter. And so in the faith chapter, he says, uh, without faith it is impossible to do what? To please God. And whoever comes to him, so if you want a relationship with God, whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So that would be seek him with all of their heart. So I was thinking about this idea because, because in his pride, the wicked man does not seek God. In all of his thoughts, there is no room for God. And then it says, if you seek him with all of your heart, you're going to find him. And it seems to me that the righteous are those that seek God with all of their heart. So I started thinking about what is that seeking God? Seeking God means he dominates your thoughts, he stirs your deepest emotions, and, and his glory motivates your actions. About two weeks ago, I, uh, my wife and I sat down to watch watched the news, and I went into the, uh, into the garage. We have a freezer in there, and so I got two Klondike bars. And so I walked into the living room where she's watching news, and I walked in with these two Klondike bars, like this. I walked in, and she, she saw me with the two Klondike bars. She goes, whoo! <laughs> she was all excited. And so I stood there in the doorway just for a minute, and I said, are you excited because I just walked in the door? Or are you excited because I've got a Klondike bar? I mean, and so she said, of course, you know. You know why I'm excited. Get over here and give me that Klondike bar right now. (laughs) That hurt. Okay. And so, of course, I had a friend of mine say, you should have asked her what she would do for a Klondike bar. (laughs) I'm going to use that next time. And that's for another message, totally, okay? When, I probably shouldn't even have said that right then, but I had to say it, so. What will you do for a Klondike bar? Now, now here's what's interesting. Of course everybody knows that she loves me more than a Klondike bar. I hope. I think she does, yeah, okay. I think she does. But I, but I kind of rubbed it in a little bit. I haven't seen you that excited in a while. So I kind of pushed it a little bit further than what I probably should have, and I had to sleep on the couch that night. And, I'm kidding, I didn't. But, uh, but I was thinking uh, as it relates to our relationship with God. And I've seen a lot of people defect from the faith because they don't get from God what they thought they should have gotten. It was almost as if they were serving God for a Klondike bar. I mean, it sounds crazy, but it was almost this kind of Klondike bar kind of uh, analogy. It's like, well, I didn't get the Klondike bar. Fooey on you, God. God. Wait, 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 listen to me, listen to me. This is what I want you to understand that anything that you get from God doesn't even come close to having him in your life. He is better by far than anything than you could ever get from him. Having him, do you you serve him to get from him or to be with him? Because to be with him is better by far than anything you could ever get from him. Do you understand that? Do you understand that? And if you don't understand that, then when you don't get what you think you should get from God, you're gonna chuck the whole thing. You're going to say, well, if that's what I get, wait, 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 time out. You are missing the most important thing about the Christian life. It's God. You have Him, regardless of what goes down in your life. Listen to me, regardless of what goes down, His presence in your life is better than any, than any presence that He may give you, by far. I mean, I, I look at people and I, I think, man, you've got a Klondike bar kind of relationship with God. You also think that God's holding a Klondike bar. What will you do for a Klondike bar? Come on, come close to me. He doesn't do that. It's all about relationship with God. It's all about knowing him. It's all about experiencing him in your life. And it's, it's this idea, and that's why, as I was thinking about this idea of seeking God, what does it mean to seek God? Knowing Christ is life's greatest passion, purpose, and pleasure. God is not a means to an end. He is the end. And I understand. If you listen to a lot of teaching in America today, they they turn God into a means means to an end. Or, hey, make God part of your life and you'll be successful. Wait, wait, wait. God, God is not just part of our life. He should be our whole life. We don't serve him because he makes life better. We serve him because he is better than life. He's better than life. So as I was, I was thinking about that, so there, the more you understand that, the more you understand that, oh my goodness, he's gonna dominate your thoughts, stir your deepest emotions, and move you to action. You're gonna seek him with all of your heart, with your deepest loyalties and affections, because you know more than anything, no trial is too overwhelming, no temptation is too alluring. If you remember who walks through your day with you, you have him, you have his presence, Greater is he that's in you than he, whatever you're facing in this world. If God is for you, who can be against you? And so that's, that's really important. So here's the next point on your notes. It is thinking out the implications of a biblical truth intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. So we're still talking about what is meditation. So it is a relishing, cherishing. The focal point is God's word. You do this regularly and relentlessly. And it's, it's really about seeking God, so it is thinking out the implications of a biblical truth intellectually, emotionally, and volitionally. So verse three, he says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water. So this is a metaphor. He's giving us this word picture, metaphorical language, metaphor of a tree drawing through its roots water to produce fruit. So think of a tree, roots going down deep into the soil, and from the soil drawing up water, Nutrients into the root system, up into the trunk, up through the branches, out of the branches comes the fruits. So, he's giving us this picture of when we take the truth of God into our head to the point that it ignites our heart and begins to transform every part of our lives as we produce fruit in our lives. So, it's taking a truth inside and making it a part of you. It is asking, What should I think? What should I feel? What should I do in response to this biblical truth? How would I be different if this biblical truth were explosively alive in my heart? Now, you'll notice on the, if you've got the sermon, uh, the growing notes there in front of you, you can turn over to the growing notes. We've, uh, we've given you three weekends in a row, these growing notes, because I want you to learn how to study the Bible. And if you follow these, this three-step model for Bible study, by the way, you need to change. Notice on the growing notes, I've got the prayer And I have you pray Psalm 119, 18, and 37, and then read. You need to change the reading assignment for this week. I forgot to update that. It's still 119. It needs to be Psalm 1. That's your reading assignment. But, but as you walk through there, so you've got step one, observation, what does the passage say? Step two, interpretation, what does the passage mean? And then step three is application, what am I doing, what am I going to do about what the passage says and means? And so this is the meditation part, and I, I put another uh, kind of tool there, SPEC as an acronym. And so oftentimes as I'm kind of walking through the text, I'll ask myself, so it, is there a sin to confess... Is there a promise to claim? Is there an example to follow? Is there a command to obey? Is there knowledge about God that I can learn? Am I living in light of this? What difference does this make in my life? Am I taking this seriously? If I believed and held to this, how would that change things in my life? When I forget this, how does that affect me in all my relationships? And so it's just kind of working that deep into our heart. I mean, it, I, I think it, it's, it's even arguing, arguing and preaching of a biblical truth into your heart until it catches fire. We're mixing metaphors here, but I think you understand what I'm saying. How many are familiar with Psalm 42? Psalm 42? How many if I said, as the deer pants for the streams of water, Psalm 42? Okay, now you know. Okay, much more. That's not a good coffee mug little uh, quote to put on a coffee mug, okay? It's just not. I mean, everybody thinks, oh, that's so nice. As the deer pants for the waters, oh, my soul. You know, I won't read it. I won't uh, sing it for you, but uh, it just messed up the whole song, didn't I? (laughs) Sorry, but that's a beautiful song, if I'm not singing it. But uh, it's a beautiful song, and yet at the same time, it's not a good quote to put on a coffee mug or a placard because actually this deer is dying, and in fact, when you read out the psalm in the context of that, he says this, "Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Have you ever felt like that?" So he's talking about and this is one of those psalms where it's not so much a pray as much as it's an internal dialogue kind of psalm. He's meditating. He said, "Come on. Why are you downcast?" Why are you in turmoil within me? I mean, there's desperation here. That's the reason why I said that's not a very good little quote to put on a coffee mug because it's a, it's a, it's a psalm of desperation. I've, I'm missing the sense of God's presence in my life. I'm out of touch with God. I've experienced his presence and his absence is unbearable. I'm desperate for God. That's what he's saying. Why are you in turmoil within me? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise my God. That's what he says. He's, he's troubled. He's working that deep within his heart. There's a book that I've got here that I love reading to my grandchildren when they come over. It's a, it's a kid's book, Thoughts to Make Your Heart Sing, Sally Lloyd-Jones. And, and in there, one of the chapters, she talks about Martin Lloyd-Jones. I believe it was her dad And he had some really good insight on this. And listen to what she says. The title is Talk to Yourself. Why are people usually unhappy? Martin Lloyd-Jones said it's because people are listening to themselves instead of talking to themselves. When you wake up in the morning, you can listen to whatever your thoughts are telling you. Maybe they are reminding you of something bad you did the day before. Maybe they are making you scared of something you have to do tomorrow. You can listen and feel horrible or you can talk back. You can remind yourself of what is true and who you are and who God is and what he has done. You can say something like, and then she quotes Psalm forty-two, eleven. Why am I discouraged? Why is my heart so sad? I will put my hope in God, are you listening to yourself today or talking to yourself? Some of you, some of you are way too anxious, angry and depressed for what you have in Jesus Christ. You're not living in the reality of what you have in Jesus Christ and who you are in him. There's no reason to be that anxious, angry, and depressed for what we have in him, for what we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh my goodness. I, I think too often we are gospel amnesiacs. We we forget, we forget what we have in Christ. That's why I love Psalm 103 also it's it's also not so much a prayer as it is a it's a meditation kind of a psalm Are you familiar with it bless the lord all oh my soul and all those within me bless his holy name i mean he's talking to himself he's like come on soul come on come on it's almost like he's grabbing grabbing his soul by the shirt like come on come on dude what in the world's wrong with you come on soul bless the lord Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. And then he goes on, and forget not all of his benefits. Why is that? Because we forget his benefits. We forget his benefits. Another quote, kind of help you to see that. I mean, this is just a short list of the benefits that we have in Christ. Of course, you could go through Psalm 103 and begin to take it. And if you begin to take Psalm 103 and just begin to work through that and take it from concept into a reality into your heart, oh my goodness, it would make all the difference in your life. But well, we struggle with gospel amnesia. We, we just don't remember who we are, who Christ is, what he's done for us. We're not living in the real reality of it. And uh, so listen to this. He says, when I forget... I am justified by faith alone. I give place to guilt and regret about the past. I therefore live in bondage to idols of power and money that make me feel better about myself. When I forget I'm being sanctified through the presence of God's Holy Spirit, I give up on myself and stop trying to change. When I forget the hope of my future resurrection I become afraid of aging and death. When I forget my adoption into the family of God, I become full of fears. I don't pray with candor. I lose my confidence. I try to hide my faults from God and myself. That's just a short list of our our forgetfulness and how we need to be reminded of what we have in Christ. Now, before we move on to the next point, this is what I want you to do. I want you to... Hit the person next to you and say this to them. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. Do that real quick. Okay, some of you kind of started preaching that, didn't you? Kind of, pre- You're a little preachy. There. Stop listening to yourself. Start preaching to yourself. And you almost have to say, start arguing with yourself. You're going to look pretty peculiar in your car though while you're going down the road as you're arguing with yourself, okay? What is up with them? Well, we all die, We all have that internal dialogue and that's all you're doing. And that's part of Psalm 42 is that arguing with yourself. Psalm 103 is a preaching of the gospel to yourself. And so, so that's, That's what meditation is. It is a relishing, cherishing, focusing on God's word regularly and relentlessly. It is thinking out the implications of the biblical truth intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, driving it deep within our heart. Here's the next one. What meditation does, it gives me a life of total fulfillment and complete well-being. Notice what he says in verse 1. Blessed is the man. What does that word blessed mean? It means this. Total fulfillment, complete well-being. Total fulfillment, complete well-being. What does that mean and what does it look like? Here's your next fill in the blank. This is less about our circumstances and more about our character. It's less about our circumstances and more about our character. After you fill in the blank, look up here. You got to get this. Because most of you would say, and if I were to say, how many want to experience total fulfillment and complete well-being? Everybody would go, whoo, yeah, I want it. I want it. How can I have it? And Immediately, you would be thinking, the way that you're going to get it is, if I had this, if I accomplished this, if I achieved this, if I acquired this, then I would have total fulfillment and complete well-being. You're going to attach it to something that's very circumstantial, and the Bible would say, no, total fulfillment and complete well-being is not in what you, you have, it's who you are. It's not in what you have or what you've attained or what you've accomplished or what you've achieved or what you've acquired. It's who you are. It's your character. All of our problems, if you really look at your marriage problems, your financial problems, your job problems, whatever they might be, Fundamentally, they're about you and how you're learning to respond and how God wants to, to work in your life through those difficulties. This is less about circumstances and more about character. And you see this in verse three. Listen to what he says. I mean, it's, it's implied in this verse. Like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It's, it's implied here in that verse, see the implication is that wind can't blow over the tree because it is a tree planted. The implication is that the wind is going to blow in your life. You're going to have difficulties. And you read this in the fuller context of the Scripture, and the Bible says, yes, life is hard. We live in a fallen world. You're going to experience difficulties. But your, your life cannot be blown over if it's like a tree rooted and established in the love of God. That's the point. That's the implication. So the implication is that the wind can't blow it over because the tree is planted. Drought can't kill it because it is by streams of water. Why, where would you get the… with? get the drought thing well it's because it's planted by streams of water so it's unaffected by drought even when drought does come in and winter seasons of barrenness can't frustrate it where'd you get the winter seasons well there's obviously seasons because he says it it's fruit in its season it yields that yields fruit in its season so there are seasons of barrenness winter seasons that's what it's talking about here and yet it says the winter seasons of barrenness can't frustrate it because its leaf does not wither because it's an evergreen. There's a, quotes I've used through the years and it's always been helpful for me to go back because I, I, need, I need my heart recalibrated just like anybody else week in and week out, day after day. And, and uh, one is a John Maxwell quote that I've used a lot through the years. It says, uh, the important and decisive factor in life is not what happens to me, but what happens in me. It's not what happens to me, it's what happens in me. He's talking character. Charles Swindoll says this, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how I respond to it. Larry Crabb, counselor, says, how a person mentally evaluates an event determines how he feels about that event and how he will behave in response to it. It's not, listen to me, it's not the events of your life that make you feel and behave the way you feel and behave. It's not the events of your life. It's your evaluation of those events. It's that internal dialogue. Above all else, guard your heart for it's the wellspring of life. You're determining the direction of your life and how you're going to feel and respond as a result of those events. It's in your hands, it's up to you. That's why he's saying, above all else, guard your heart. It's up to you. You've got to guard your heart. You've got to understand the internal dialogue of your heart. See, the great illusion is that the things that happen to me, my circumstances control my my outcomes, so to speak, my feelings and response. In reality, it is my beliefs about what has happened to me that ultimately determines really the outcome, my feelings and my response. We tend to spend most of our life in circumstance enhancement rather than saying, okay, God, what do you want to do in my life? See, this is why two people can be in precisely the same situation and have polar opposite responses to it because of of where they differ is in their beliefs, but more fundamentally, it's about their character. It's it's about their character, not their circumstances as much as their character. For example, this is the difference between cats and dogs. This is going to be pretty profound. A dog looks at his circumstances and says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, you must be God. A cat looks at his circumstances and says, you feed me, you pet me, you shelter me, I must be God. That's why there will be no cats in heaven. Yeah, they're, they're, wicked. they're wicked animals, terribly wicked. You have to pamper them and take care of them. They think they run the house. That's just how they are. How many cat lovers do we have in the house? Show of hands. Okay. My deepest condolences. <laughs> There's better things in heaven than cats, okay? So you don't, you don't need your little furry thing there in heaven. But, but okay, let's not miss the point here. Okay, let's not miss the point. What is the point, Pastor Ray? I, I already lost it. I missed it. Okay, because the point is the point is it's more about your character than it is your circumstances, it's more about that internal dialogue. It's more about what is it that dominates your thoughts, stirs your deepest mo- emotions, and moves you to action. The Bible uses the idea of heart some 900 times. Seek him with all of your heart. Above all else, guard your heart. We see that over and over again. It really has to do with what are your core commitments? What What is most important to you? That's, that's what he's What the Bible's getting at, that's what he's getting at here. And so our character is either being conformed to this world or being transformed by God's word. That's your next uh, couple fill in the blanks. So it's less about, so this this fulfillment, total fulfillment and complete well-being is less about circumstances, more about character, and our character is either being conformed to this world or being transformed by God's word. I mean, that's why I love uh, Romans 12 too. It says, Talks about that. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Talking about God's word, that's what he's saying here. Verse 1, I love this. This is rich stuff. When I learned this a a number of years ago, uh, I mean, it was life transforming. I began to realize how change really does take place. He says, blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of the sinner or sit in the seat of the scornful. Did you notice the progression here? This is how how change begins to take place. It's really showing us how we are more and more conformed to this world. It starts with walking in the counsel of the wicked, believing, and then it moves from believing to standing in the way of the sinners, which is behaving, and then before long, you're sitting in the seat of the scoffers or the scornful, and then you're belonging. In other words, it's just second nature to you. So believing, behaving, belonging. You feel at home around scoffers, around people who embrace that lifestyle or whatever it is. It's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. He's, he's helping us to understand how our hearts work, how we work. So it starts with the belief system, and it moves from beliefs to behavior to belonging. You've heard the quote before, sow a thought, reap an action, sow an action, reap a habit, sow a habit, reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. So, so what he's saying here is, and here's my challenge, as I begin to reflect on this and think about this, I'm thinking about my own life. Are you becoming more and more loving, joyful, and peaceful? Is that the course of your life, or more and more angry, depressed, and anxious? What's the course of your life? I mean, we've all known, folks, that the older they got, the more crankier, the more bitter, the more hard they were to live with, I don't want to go that direction. All of us are on a trajectory. All of us are headed in some direction. That's the point that he's saying. C.S. Lewis, I love two of his quotes. He says here, every time you make a choice, you are slowly turning into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature. Just with our choices. With our choices. The choices that you make. He also says, each day we are becoming a creature of splendid glory or one of unthinkable horror. Horror. Here's another thing, and not only do we have to be careful about this internal dialogue, but he's also talking about who is it that's influencing our lives? You will ultimately become most like those you hang out with. I mean, that's the essence of discipleship. Associate with everyone, but hang out with those who stir up greater appetite for God in you. And... and. When we were raising our kids, Nancy and I are, are three, and I, I remember hearing parents say this. It was, it was crazy. They were saying, well, we don't want to impose any values or morals upon our kids. When they reach an age, we, we want them to kind of discover them on their own. What are you, insane? <laughs> Those kids are going to get values and morals just hanging out on this planet. It's not whether or not they're going to get values and morals. They're going to get them. Who are they going to get them from? Does that make sense? Who are they going to get them from? I want to be the one that impresses them, my kids, with the morals and values that they desperately need to have. I mean, praise God. We need that. And so that's why we take it so seriously here. That's why we study God's word. That's why with our kids, we don't mess around. We want them to understand God's word. We want them to encounter Christ. We want their lives to be transformed by God's word. And so that's, that's so important. And, and so the TV, the movies, the music, the social media, all of that is, is either, we're either being conformed into the image of this world or being transformed by the renewal of our mind through God's Word. It's one or the other. So you got to listen to your internal dialogue, but you got to start looking around to say, well, who, who do I have in my life that's really influencing me? It's called discipleship. Where do you turn for advice and approval? So that's, that's the, ultimately the question you need to look at. Who do I turn to for advice and approval? Is it in the world or is it God's word? Is it God's people? Because wherever you're looking for advice and approval is what's going to ultimately shape your life. And, and this is what we, we learn here is what happens. is that uh, So here's the change that it begins. to. Do. So our character is either being conformed to this world or being transformed by God's word. And so this is what... Notice that it's a beautiful contrast that he makes here, substance. So my life is either going to be a life of substance or superficiality. Did you notice the contrast? Verse 2, tree planted, that's substance, superficiality. Verse 4, chaff, the wind drives away. You guys familiar with the winnowing process? You guys know what chaff is? Chaff is the dry protective shell around uh, kernels of wheat. And so in the winnowing process, they'd throw it up in the air, the wind would blow through it. And the chaff would blow over into a pile because it was light, had no substance, but the wheat kernels had more substance and they'd fall down to the ground in front of them. And that's the the contrast he's making. Your life is either gonna be a life of substance or it's gonna be a life of superficiality. Are you you more like a tree planted? Do you have substance or like chaff, the wind drives away? Here's another way of asking that question. I was thinking about that. So are you proactive or reactive in life? Do you have character Or are you a character? (laughs) Okay? So reactive people, chaff-like people, are often affected by their environment. If the weather is good, they feel good. But if the weather is bad, it affects their attitude and performance. Weather meaning people, things, and circumstances. I mean that in the full sense of that. Proactive people, tree-planted people carry their weather with them. Whether it rains or shines, it makes no difference to them because they are value-driven based on God's word because they know, as we shared last weekend, they know that in this changing world, they can trust God's unchanging word They've built their life on the solid foundation of God's Word, not just hearing Christ, but obeying him as he talks about that in the Sermon on the Mount, about the two people that built their houses, their homes, one on the rock, one on the sand, and when the storms came, which one was still standing, the one built on the rock, and that was the one that listened to Jesus' words and followed him and obeyed him, as opposed to the one on the sand that crashed and burned because he heard God's word but didn't obey him, didn't have that relationship with him. So we could say character is this, it's it's your behavior, your behavior is the product of your choices based on on your godly values, your biblical values. Your, Your behavior is the product of choices based on your values versus a person who lacks character is their behavior how they they respond to life is the product of their feelings based on the people, things, and circumstances of life. One of the verses we had up on the screen, Philippians 4, 6, he says, don't be anxious about anything. Let Let me paraphrase that for you. Stop letting people, things, and circumstances jerk you around. Get a grip on your life. Don't be reactive, be proactive. That's what he's saying. Stop letting life jerk you around. Don't be anxious about anything but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God. Cling to him. Let him transform your life. That's what he's saying. I love that. I, I need that daily. Because I let people, things, and circumstances jerk me all over the place. I need to say, wait, 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 wait. time out. I need to get come back and get recalibrated. And that's, that's a person of character. That's why I love the word Responsibility. Have you ever looked at that word, response-ability? Response-ability. You have the ability to choose your response, regardless of how dark or difficult it is. That's what he's saying here. Be a person of, of responsibility. He's he given us that to, to be able to do that, to make those kind of choices. So I've made a list here. Chaff-like people are impulsive, Feeling-driven, moody, critical, defensive, unteachable, entitled, proud, self-righteous, bitter, blame-shifters, uncommitted, without boundaries, duplicitous, which means two-faced, no integrity. That's just a short list, okay? That's crazy, and I can see myself in all of those. That's why I need Jesus, and you do too. I was thinking, if you want to study more on this topic, the uh, most popular two messages of 2015 were during our Braveheart series in Judges, and we talked about character matters and unsafe people. You can go online and, or get to download the app and listen to those, and it was about Samson. Another uh, popular series was our relationship series that we did here at the beginning of the year that, that has to do with character I would encourage you to check it out, but it's a mess worth making. Relationship's a mess worth making. We talk about conflict, conflict resolution, boundaries, communication, difficult people, and forgiveness. All the things that we desperately need in our life so that we can have character and and have that, and have substance to our lives. And then how can we, why can we have substance? Because we have sustenance. Sustenance. Look at the contrast here. Verse 3, streams of water versus starved Verse 5, will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. Sustenance. It's speaking of really satisfaction. Whether you realize it or not, you are, and this is what I prayed at the beginning at the opening prayer, you and I are desperate to see his face, hear his voice, feel his touch, know his power, and experience his love deep within our heart daily. Every day, week in and week out. But sin interferes with that. Sin separates us from God. And so we don't we don't have that. We would we fit into the category before Christ, we fit into the category of will not stand in the judgment nor sits in, in the congregation of the righteous. So how do we how do we make the how do we make the change from, from being wicked to righteous? so that we can have this sustenance and therefore have substance to our lives. Well, you gotta know the gospel. And a lot of people don't know the gospel. So I know I'm putting, putting you on the spot here, but I've talked about, and I talk about the gospel a lot, but you gotta be able to tell me the gospel just like that. Boom. Oh, here's the gospel. Here's the gospel. And, and in fact, there should be almost like, here's the gospel, and it should just like, Wow. And I love the gospel. I love, I love Jesus, and I love all that it represents. Turn to the po- folks next to you real quick. And just, just tell them maybe in one sentence what the gospel is real quick. Real quick, do that. I think probably a lot of you have it. Let me recite it to you. I had it on a card that I went around and actually, uh, I was meditating on it this morning, but I've done that in the past. And it about sent me through the ceiling as I began to reflect on it. My heart, I thought my heart was, I mean, this morning when I started off the morning, I thought I was like, doing well. But as I began to reflect on that, and this is just one one way of of reciting the gospel. and, And I would encourage you to do this, but the gospel is the good news that God has reconciled us to himself by sending his son, Jesus, to die in our place for our sins and all who repent and believe have eternal life. Another way of saying it is just taking the word grace. God's redemption at Christ's expense and then kind of walking through each of those ideas. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense and understanding that he came and he bled and died for us to reconcile us back to the Father. And that's how we go from being wicked in that category to being righteous. And it's absolutely breathtaking because it's not, the gospel is not good, news, or good, uh, good advice at what you must do to be right with God. It is good news about what he has done to make us right with him. And we enter into it by putting our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And when you do that by grace through faith in him, through prayer, boom, you move from being in this category of the of the wicked, as he says here, into the righteous will not stand in the judgment. We can stand in the judgment because Jesus took our judgment. And we are numbered among the righteous. We, can, we are in the congregation of the right. We are his children. And we are so desperate to, through the gospels, to regularly come to him and, and have that sustenance, because that sustenance is what gives us stability. And I think we forget the gospel. Our hyperactivity and attention deficit disorder culture hinders us from true intimate conversation with him preceded by listening to his voice through slow reflection and meditation on the scripture and particularly just reminding ourselves, if you just took the gospel and begin to reflect on it think about what do I have in Christ? Who is Christ to me? How does that live out of my life? If this was explosive alive in my heart, what difference would it make in how I'm responding to my marriage difficulties or my financial difficulties or my work difficulties or whatever it might be? It would change you. It would transform your life. And so we need that, we desperately need that as we work through that in our lives and that's gonna bring the significance, the fruitfulness, that's your last one. So so you can see it's really the sustenance. As I savor, as I enjoy who I am, he lavishes me with his great love. I'm his child, he loves me. As I'm drawing on that daily, that gives me the substance in my life and then it gives me the significance of, of fruit bearing. Notice the contrast, significance. Fruit doesn't wither, prospers versus insignificance will perish who can live this life? Who can live this life? Notice he doesn't say blessed is the smart person or the rich person or the gifted person or the attractive person. No, blessed is the man. You fill filling the blank there. It's just a person, just a person. I know I've hit you with a lot of stuff this, uh, this morning. I've, I've kind of overdosed you a lot. I understand that. I kind of do that, don't I? But it's but it's because it's because I love you guys. I love you guys. I want I want you to get this. I want you to live this. I want you to experience this in your life. Um, we're almost finished. Oh, maybe not. I'm just kidding. George Mueller who immersed himself And the care of thousands of orphans in the 1800s, suffered from bad health and the weight of stressful responsibilities. George Mueller couldn't eliminate stress or occasional bad health, so what was his solution? He wrote, I saw more clearly than ever, this is what he said, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. I gotta start my day. This is how I start my day. I start my day just filling my heart up on him, finding my deepest satisfaction in him. That sustenance that gives me substance and significance, fruit bearing. So I saw more clearly than ever that the first and great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation on it. That's the most important thing you could do every day. How to meditate. Meditation assumes you already know what a text means, and so I gave you kind of the guidelines there. 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, we need to rightly handle the word of God. Why? Because 2 Timothy 4.3-4 says there will be a time when people will not endure sound teaching but flock to churches that tickle their ears. We live in that day. And that's why we need to be like the Bereans who were more noble than the Thessalonians because they studied the scripture daily to make sure that what Paul was teaching was truly the word of God. And so I gave you some steps on that. Meditation assumes you already know what the text speaks, and so you need to go through those growing notes, those three steps, observation, interpretation, and then application. Here's the next one. Meditation assumes that you have memorized the text. He meditates day and night. The best defense to the lies we hear in our head is the rehearsal of the truth of God in our heart. You can't rehearse what you can't remember. Ask most Christians to consider a spiritual discipline of memorizing God's word, and immediately, I've heard this, excuses fly. It's too hard, I'm too old, I have a bad memory, but what if I offered you $1,000 for every verse you could memorize? (laughs) Woo, Klondike Bar! (laughs) Klondike Bar! Do you think your attitude towards Scripture memory and your ability to memorize would improve if I offered you $1,000 for every verse you memorized? I know someone's going to rush up to me right at the end of the service and say, Pastor Ray, I've got that verse. Jesus wept. Where's my $1,000? I didn't actually promise that, okay? And you can't use that verse, okay? That, we're going to take that verse out. That's that, that little verse, that one little verse. So... Listen to me, any financial reward would be minimal compared to the value of the treasure of God's word in your heart. There are greater levels of intimacy and maturity awaiting you beyond your wildest dreams. If I were to teach a class on meditation, this is what I would do. We would gather up and the first thing I would do is I would have everybody kind of go off on their own for about 30 minutes and maybe take this verse, Psalm 1-6, and for 30 minutes, see if you could write down at least 50 things you could learn from Psalm 1-6. I, I found that verse really was impactful for me. The Lord watches over the ways of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked will perish. That's a great verse. He comes close and cares for us is really what it's saying. And here's what would happen if you begin to do that. After about 10 minutes, it's going to feel agonizing, like you can't, you can't think of anything more. You're just going to go, oh, my goodness, 10 minutes, and I'm, I'm tapped out. But if you keep pressing and pressing and pressing... And then at the end of the 30 minutes, we gathered everybody up, and then we, I had everybody here, uh, everyone share the number one life-changing thing that you got from the text. It would be really, really profound as we would w- write those up on the board, and we would go, wow, that's phenomenal insight. And then if I begin to ask everybody, when did you come up with that, that impactful truth? Was it after five minutes? I would see no hands raised. Was it after 10 minutes? No hands would be raised. Was it after about 25 minutes? Yeah. Because they pressed and they pressed and they pressed. Oftentimes people will say, I would love to experience the presence of God like Pastor Ray does. They've said that to me. I would love to experience his presence like you experience it. But here's my thing for you. I don't think you're willing to do what I do. I mean that with all sincerity. I saturate my life in his word. Not because I have to because I want to, I've tasted of the sweetness of his word. His words are sweet to my taste, sweeter than honey on my mouth. Psalm 119, 103, I can't live without my interaction with him and knowing him. Are you willing to do that? Here's the last point, we'll pray. Meditation is a sustained process like a tree growing its roots down toward the water source. Trees don't grow overnight. We must be patient, persistent, asking for God's mercy and help. The effects are cumulative. Let's pray. I went way too long, but oh well. That's the way it is. When you guys go over there today with the uh, children, tell them thank you. They don't get enough credit. They hang in there for a long time when I'm long-winded like this on on a weekend service. and So really tell them that you really appreciate their hard work. Especially in light of that long-winded pastor over there, okay? Tell him that. So, God, thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your truth. Transform our lives. Let us be people that meditate on your word, that we rejoice in your word, that we'd be like this tree planted by streams of water so we can bear fruit in season. Our, Our leaf will not wither. Whatever we do will prosper for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, And everyone said, amen. Love you guys.